Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey there, Steve. We have a returning guest today as we're joined by the excellent Jason Neesmith. Jason first appeared as part of episode 19 when we also spoke to Vanessa Briscoe-Hay from Pylon. Researching that episode, it was clear that we needed to bring Jason back to talk about his own musical story. And Ben, I for one, am glad we did. Oh, entirely, mate. I think we knew we knew what we'd signed up for. Um, as soon as we got into that conversation with Vanessa and Jason the first time, it was like, yeah, it was a no brainer that we had to kind of get him back. Um, the role that he played in bringing that pylon box set to fruition, um, the sort of archive knowledge and all the the in-depth work that he did with that was so inspiring. And then some of the you know, just rudimentary searches that brought us to some of the things that Jason had done himself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We had to, we had to have him on the podcast, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. He's it's such a nice guy and his story has so much to it, doesn't it? He has, he's got such a range of experiences and hearing him speak, it just makes you want to go and explore his whole catalogue. It did. Yeah. And very, very close to the beginning of the episode when he kind of details his journey, his route into music which starts at an incredibly early age. And, you know, the statement comes out, music is my life. And he, you know, he set him on that, set himself on that path to a life in music and has dedicated his, dedicated himself to that. Um, yeah. And the, the kind of the, the ebb and flow of the story and all the, the different parts, places that, um, that the journey has taken Jason comes through loud and clear on this uh, conversation. Yeah, and at that lovely moment when he sings to us. Oh, that was that, <laughs> one that of was my favourite moments. It was a peach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've listened to that repeatedly, just gone back and back to it because it was brilliant. I wish, if, you know, if anyone's coming on the show and has a listen to that and they can offer something in the similar manner, please do because it was oh. it was just such a moment. Yeah, I mean, it should be a regular question, shouldn't it? I mean, we won't we won't kind of reveal what the question is now because it's such a nice moment when it unfolds, but it should just be on the list of questions. It should, it should. And it brings to mind the fact that this is someone who, you know, we were talking about his role in the sort of archiving with, uh, with Pylon and being the custodian of that. Well, he's also been the custodian of his own massive archive of music that stretches back to these very, very first songs. Yeah, I don't think we've we've ever spoken to anyone who's so sort of carefully catalogued their entire musical output. Oh, it's brilliant. I, He's really gone for that. Yeah, isn't and it? I felt oh, I, I for one feel pretty en- um, envious of that situation. Uh, you know, I've said before, but I wish I wish I'd put the time and effort into doing that across my own my own sort of making the music journey. Yeah, and uh, and but not just I've got it. I'm here it is it's I've got it and I'm going to revisit it and uh re-engage with things in a creative way and he talks about that and that was pretty inspiring as well I love I mean we talk about it a little bit in across a few episodes that idea of staying in touch with uh your former self or you know where you were and people you're with and and staying connected to those things and he's doing that in a really interestingly creative way I think he did. He he said adult producer versus inspired kid vision, which I thought was right on the money. Totally brilliant. And, you know, it's um, it's it, it's a bold move to go back and kind of unearth stuff from that uh, that early on in your music making experiences. But the fact that he wants to kind of 
come back to it he can he can see a seed of something in there and wants to present it in this really refreshing and open new way it's brilliant it is brilliant that's uh i mean that's an arts council bid right there isn't there <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah brilliant well look, thanks to uh thanks to jason neesmith for coming on and speaking to us again and and for sharing his uh his demo um it's definitely worth going and having a look at all the stuff casper and the cookies and in this instance it's uh casper fandango and his tiny sick tears which is just such a brilliant band name <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i absolutely love it um yeah if you're enjoying the show please do um like and subscribe and help us spread the word um and also if we haven't kind of done a shout out lately for asking someone to send in their demo but if you have if you're listening to this and you've got an old demo tape and um you, that you're interested to share we, we're interested to speak to anyone from across the spectrum of success and experience so do give us a shout yeah please do come on in come on in and come on over to our conversation <laughs> with jason neesmith on episode 34 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Hi, my name is Jason Neesmith, and the song you'll hear at the end of this podcast is Mosey Home. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Jason, and thanks for making time to speak with us again. I guess we've Vanessa Briscoe Hay to thank, as she was keen for you to join us as part of our pylon episode. And in preparing for that conversation, it was quickly apparent that we absolutely had to speak to you about your own music making. Um, now, the Wikipedia entry for your band, Casper and the Cookies, describes you as a multi-instrumentalist. So what was the instrument that started that journey off for you? Um, the first instrument I learned how to play was piano. Uh, I, taught, I, I took the Suzuki method for six months, and then my parents gave me a – they made sure I had a, a personal instructor. I took piano lessons for six years, and that's still – how I think about music though. I don't touch the piano as much as I touch a guitar, but I was also uh, thinking about drums, even though I didn't have a drum set or really know how one worked. Uh, I, I would imitate drum sounds with my mouth in sort of a, a toddler version of beatboxing. Um, uh, and I just did that until I eventually got a drum set. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's, those are the two things. Um, uh, and, and when I was 12, I got a electric guitar and, um, I never, I, I it was, a, it, that, I still think of guitar as a, a foreign instrument to me because it's laid out like almost like a piano keyboard, but folded across almost in a weird, like you've got to know how to play chess to play guitar. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I am a multi-instrumentalist, but I feel sort of foreign to all of it, which I kind of think is maybe a good thing. I'm not a non-musician like Brian Eno would call himself, but I'm sort of, I don't, I don't have a home base. Where do you sit in that kind of argument about having a, a solid understanding of kind of music theory against the kind of lack of it and improvisation? Oh, well, I, I think it's useful. Um, it's, I don't think you have to use it when you're composing. I think it's better to sort of try to stay in the area of mystery. And, and if you can keep yourself from analyzing what, what you're, what you're doing, then I think you'll be more satisfied with it. Maybe later on you can tinker with it, but it's, it was useful to me to um, analyze what other people had done 
I didn't I didn't lose mystery from listening from from analyzing other mu- other music um, the way that I think some people are afraid that they will. Uh, I found I found it really in, insightful and and exciting and and inspiring, but it's not something that I do when I'm writing. Was there much music around your home when you were growing up? Uh, nobody in my immediate family played an instrument, um, but uh, but there was a little collection of records in the house and uh i as soon as i was allowed which was at two or three years old i was putting the needle on the phonograph record and i had the headphones on and i was staring at the record player um uh, and that was you know that was beatles records and that was uh moody blues records (laughs) um so i i got pretty spacey pretty early (laughs) uh wait you know i was listening to the radio too but uh but yeah, there wasn't a a culture of music um, performance in the house, but but there was music appreciation. So you gravitated to music at a really really young age, and it kind of just it sort of snowballed from there, presumably, did it? Yeah, uh, I don't want to say I sandbagged myself, but I I I I dedicated myself really early on to the idea that music was going to be my the the thing I surrounded myself with forever, um, and I don't I don't remember deciding to be a musician, but my my parents remember me telling them music is my life at you know three or four years old, um, and I and part of that was writing. It wasn't just oh I want to play guitar or you know who's the person that makes the records or whatever. Like I wanted. I wanted to write the songs and perform the songs and <laughs> record the songs. Do you remember the first song that you ever wrote? Uh, I I do. Uh, I remember the stages of, you know, like the first the first time I thought I had a song was actually a poem in the beginning of a book. So somebody else wrote the lyrics and I was imagining it being a song. And then uh, I went to the movies and I saw, I, I saw a movie called Oh Heavenly Dog. And, um, and I, <laughs> I might, so that song was just a rewrite of it's a heartache by Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, exactly, yeah. And, and the, the lyrics, uh, it went, Oh, heavenly dog, you came into my life. Somebody killed somebody with a knife and somebody drowned. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that was the first time I wrote. Uh, oh, that class. It's been uphill from there. That's <laughs> <laughs> setting the bar high right there. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Ah, lovely. So how what, making that announcement to your um, to your immediate family, saying that, that music was your life, given that there was um, that, that it wasn't a kind of musical household. How how did that? land with people but were you encouraged from that point were you ever tried to but did people ever try to sort of steer you away into other things oh sure um and they were probably right uh that uh, i did have this unshakable belief that somehow i would just get discovered which is a a dangerous idea to carry around with you uh and my father knew that and he said look you're gonna have to go to college and and get a degree and I think you should become um I think you want to be to be an electrical engineer at one point I thought maybe I'll be a dentist because my dentist was a real fun guy but that wasn't going to happen um 
but uh, yeah, I I did I did not want to go to college. I wanted to. I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I thought I should probably just go, you know, get a band and start doing whatever bands do. Um, and it, it this was a lot of a source of a lot of friction between me and my dad and. Um, uh, eventually we settled on two places where I would apply to college. Um, he, he was like, you have to have something to fall back on. I said, okay, well, I've, how about if I, uh, am a, an audio engineer or a producer, I want to be a producer, not knowing that you can't just say you're a producer if you don't have contacts and money. Um, so, so I said, that's what I'll be. I'll be a producer. And, um, well, where, where would you go to learn how to do such a thing? And I, I looked at music schools uh, and I thought I w- I'd been a, I'd been in school band. We had a concert band, uh, not a marching band, because it was a school in Germany, in West, in West Germany at the time. And they didn't have marching bands, they had concert bands. So uh, I played drums in that band and I thought maybe I could get a position as a percussionist uh, in the Indiana University of Bloomington that have a really well-respected music department. We flew back to the States from Germany. I um, auditioned there and all of their uh, techniques were completely different than anything that I'd learned. And all of the people who were applying had been in marching band and they were a killer. They were, they were absolutely great. They were doing rudiments in the hallway. And I knew immediately that I was not going to get into this program. Um, and I failed miserably. I just flopped. Um, the saving grace of that day was that, uh, the, the university, uh, had a chapel where they hosted touring musicians and Lori Anderson was doing a show that night just coincidentally. And I'd never, I'd never seen her before. I just saw a flyer in the hallway that I was walking down trying to feel less than terrible about what I just done. I went, Oh my God, Lori Anderson is playing tonight in about three hours. So that was amazing. And the other college I, I uh, looked at was the Berkeley college of music. And I was terrified because they had an even bigger reputation. Uh, but they had no audition process essentially at that time. Um, I asked for one and they said, Oh, you want to, you want to audition? Okay. What are the notes in a C major chord? And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) Um, So I got in uh, and, and my father was happy because everywhere he looked, he saw little Jason's, you know, other people that look just like me. So, um, so that's what I did. Um, And I got into the music production and engineering program at that school. And that is, turns out, what happened to me in my life. Uh, I'm not a, necessarily a producer, but the skills that I learned there have been the ones that that have floated me through the rest of my career. It sounds like you had a really gentle guidance from your parents that kind of really supported you, even though they were kind of in, in, questioning that it, they were still backing you and, and opening things up for you. They, yeah, they, they were very, they were very supportive. I, I wasn't always, I didn't always feel that way, but they bought me, they, they didn't buy me anything I wanted, but you know, I got a drum set and then I got a hi hat, you know, I didn't have a hi hat, but then I got a hi hat for Christmas and I had a, 
a keyboard and a synthesizer and a piano and a couple of guitars. So I was pretty well stocked with, you know, functional instruments. I had two tape recorders and I would, I had some cheap microphones. Actually, I recorded vocals through headphones a lot of the time. Um, so I would record to one tape deck and then I'd, there was a radio shack, um, a quarter of a mile away. So I would go buy adapters, Y adapters and chain things together so that I could overdub sound on sound from one cassette deck to another. And, uh, were you doing, were you doing that instinctively? Were you teaching yourself or did you have anyone that was guiding you through? No, I, I did it. I did it just because I had a really super early, very basic knowledge of, uh, what a signal path was. I mean, I knew I could tape a record off of the record player onto a cassette and I was lucky enough to have two cassette players. And I was like, ah, I can tape one cassette to another. And I don't know if I, I don't know how I figured it out, but I, I guess I, I knew what an RCA plug looked like, like a phono plug. And I, I must've gone to Radio Shack and seen that they can have two of these things going into one of those things, which means that you can put something else on there. I guess that's what happened. Um, but I, I know that I didn't, read that anywhere i wasn't reading about recording yet um and i and in my mind i really didn't know the difference between that and overdubs so i thought i had infinite overdubs that i'd like why isn't everybody doing this <laughs> it's because it's fixed you know <laughs> you can never change it how much of that spirit of that that kind of um let's just try this spirit have you retained over the years in, in the way that you record do, do you still find yourself oh, let's just try this thing you know that uh, that same sort of ethos behind that dro drove you in the first I re place i regret to say i don't think that i've kept it uh protected as well as i wish i have had um my inner editor has become very strong uh and i really have to try to turn him off and remember the feeling of that spontaneous creativity that I used to just have all the time. Um, but it's so easy to think uh, that, you know, okay, I've, I've got a, I want to write a song. I've sort of got a feeling. And then uh, I can't think of a phrase or that phrase sucks, or it sounds like that this melody sounds like something else already, or there's nothing interesting about this when, you know, I'm going to, you should just plow through it and write a, write the bad song and then maybe something will come later. But I, it's harder for me to let myself fail now. <laughs> um, so when I write now, it is kind of painstaking. It, it It's not like Scott Walker's, you know, last records where he would write a phrase on a piece of paper and hand it to his assistant and his assistant had to tell him what it reminded him of. And if it reminded him of anything, then it was thrown out. <laughs> it's not quite that bad, <laughs> but it's, it's next door. Um, so it takes me, you know, it takes me years. Uh, um, I don't, I, I don't know if it's time to talk about this or not, but the, but one of the things that I have been doing over the past few years is, to look at old songs, some of the, the earliest songs I wrote and on the songs, songs through high school that I, I don't like the way they turned out, but there was some inspiration, some early inspiration there that I can take. Um, since those things are never going to be heard by anybody else, it doesn't matter at all. Um, 
So to sort of be the big brother or the producer to this child musician. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to do in the next few months uh, is release a, one song that has had two different versions. And one is the, the one that I wrote when I was 10. And one is the one that I've been writing since I was about 40 or, you know, uh, and they'll Amazing. be essentially you'll hear the same thing in both of those songs, but one is pretty innocent and one is really jaded and not uh, the jaded one. Isn't hopeless. It's just same character, you know, 38 years later. How are you going to frame that uh, in terms of, of the releasing it into the world? So I think it's going to, it's going to be part of an album. Uh, but the original version, the, the 10 year old Jason version is going to be on an, on maybe just like a, if it's going to be an EP uh, or a single or something, whether it's a vinyl release or just two songs on Bandcamp or something, but it'd be nice to have those as a set together and then hear the finished song also in in its proper place today. Have you have you archived everything that you've written and recorded throughout your throughout your yes. sort of life making yes. music? Um, you have behind. Well, hmm. there are a lot of cassettes behind this red piece of fabric here. Uh, and a lot of them are backed up onto this drive that says Jason's audio archive. Um, so yeah, almost everything that I ever want to hear again, I can hear pretty easily. Um, there might be a couple of things left in there that I need to go get, but, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the editor got strong is because I just kept pouring back over and over these things. And I've, I've done some other projects that haven't been released where I've just gone back to the, to these tapes and pulled the interesting bits and tried to make this sort of, you know, it's nostalgia for me, but it might just be psychedelic noise for everybody else. Or there's not, you're not concerned about songs so much. It's just like that. That's a cool noise. And it's almost sounds like, uh, I guess the intention is, again, for the adult producer to go look at the at the inspired kid musician the way that uh, what's his name, Uva Nettlebeck, I think, is a was the producer for Faust. I don't know if this is familiar to you guys, but I can't remember the producer's name. But that that band, the the German Kosmische band Faust, had a producer who just sort of picked all their good bits and. Um, and put them together so they would just make noise all day and he you know after a while he'd be like okay here's your album um so that's kind of what i'm doing for for young me too uh, i'm trying to make my faust tapes or my lumpy gravy or something and it's not going to be those things it's not going to be that good but it'll be sort of in that spirit you know what's it like going back and getting an insight you know take you know imagining you taking a view of 10 year old jason then in a way it's humbling because, <laughs> uh, I'm not as, I'm not as good as I thought I was. <laughs> and I realize that now. Um, but, uh, but I really admire him, you know, I think he's, uh, he's got, he's got ambition and, um, yeah, I admire that about him. So I want to, I want to honor him and, um, so yeah, I, I, eventually those things will come out. It's it's been it's been fun, but it's also 
frustrating because I thought there was more good stuff, you know, the, the memory of, of what it is, what the memory of doing it and how I felt are so much bigger than the end result was. That's so true. If you could, if you could capture that actual essence of feeling and transmit that to some, to other people, that would be incredible. Yeah. Wouldn't it? I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with like that. When you finish writing a song, I mean, writing the song can be such a pain in the ass, but when you get to a place where you're happy with it, there's kind of no better feeling in the world. And the songwriters say that all the time, but it's because we all know that, that, that sense of accomplishment and that like, Oh, I have created something new under the sun and people will hear it and mm -hmm. understand how I feel. And it's not corny necessarily, or if it is corny, that's okay. I don't know. It's, it's a great feeling. And I get that feeling, but less often now. Um, but that's all right. I've had it a bunch. <laughs> yeah. And there's something about staying uh, or, or, or um, maintaining a connection with sort of former ver versions of yourself um, you know, going back to where you once were and staying and, and maintaining a connection with that. I think that's really important, especially for, you know, a, a, a creative person. Um, I think there's, there's loads of, loads of benefits to that. Uh, there has, has yeah. there been music that has taken you by surprise in a good way? Yeah, I, I do. I do like, I mean, I think a lot of songwriters do this and they don't say it out loud. Like, uh, you know, like the, some of the first, clues i got of that were like listening to lou reed records where he'd clearly just gone back and taken like a, a velvet underground song that hadn't been officially released and redone it but you didn't know that he wrote that song five years earlier you know and then you come to find out that andy warhol was telling him to write as many songs as possible when you're young because you're not going to be young forever uh that was exactly right <laughs> but that's a great instruction can you wind back a little bit jason take us back to your sort of the first time that you hook up with other people in a band and connect with with other musicians yes um there's a couple of stories uh again this is like where i was telling you about the the first song i wrote was kind of this much of writing a real song and the next song was a little bit more of writing a real song but uh the band trajectory was the same way so the the first time that i uh had a project with somebody else uh there were i it was me and three friends uh and our last names were pearson neesmith fitzpatrick cannon so we called ourselves pnfc and we would walk around at recess with uh at first, it was with the lyric sheet from the Hollow Notes record Voices, and we would kind of sing to each other from that. Awesome. Um, awesome. And, uh, and then we started writing songs, but we didn't have instruments because we were just walking around the periphery of the playground. Um, so we would just, it was almost like, you know, preteen doo wop. Um, I remember a lot of those songs too, and they're hilarious. Um, uh, but you're not going to get, any of them from me right now uh but the next, the next <laughs> we'll join in ah <laughs> uh, there's nothing you know what no we won't. one of we the won't. one of the best things about zoom is hearing people trying to sing happy birthday together and they all know it's never going to work and they try anyway um yeah so the next the next band um my next door neighbor had uh, a guitar and a tape recorder and i 
didn't have a drum set, but I had a Casio. Like a, I had an MT40. That was the first keyboard I had. I still have it. Uh, it almost works perfectly. And we made a drum set out of uh, a couple of dowel rods, one big thick book, one piece of paper on the floor, and like a toy symbol that had some blocks around it to hold it in place. So it was the big thick book was the bass drum and the piece of paper was a snare drum and the symbol. Um, and so we actually recorded some songs together uh, that we wrote and recorded. And then um, one of the guys from PNFC, this is a lot of uh, backstory. One of the guys from PNFC uh, was Chris Pearson. And we split off and did our own band called the Pearson Neesmith Project. <laughs> <laughs> but the, for the first few months, he couldn't come over to my house. So I recorded the first two Pearson Neesmith Project records as solo records. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> oh, the nerve. Um, and I, I did them in that way where I would, I would record a piano part and then I would stick the tape in the top deck and the blank tape in the bottom and record a guitar part, which was also pretty bad. And then the last one would be the drum set. Um, but that was also though, obviously the, the first, the next relationship that I had in music is one that I have to this day. Um, I, I went to a new school in 1984 and was it 83 and I met uh, this guy named Chris Christopher Snell, and is one of those like he was tall and he kind of looked like Tom Hanks, and I was like, yeah, he's probably pretty cool. Um, I had no other friend, I had no friends there, so I okay, we're gonna talk to this guy, uh, and we started talking and got talking about music, and he said, uh, do you like the Beatles? And I was like, yeah, I like the Beatles immediate band you know um and he had already he kind of had a similar uh couple of years that i'd had where he had a a kitty band called the reds brothers that were based on it was like not the blues brothers it's the reds brothers but they'd written their own songs and they didn't have instruments and uh so we actually started to get together at lunch every day and practice uh practice our new songs um and we had a, a series of bands that eventually started to play out, um, <clears throat> but not before I moved away to Germany. So we, we were basically a home recording project. Uh, and then every summer, one of us would visit the other one overseas and we would record all the songs that we'd stockpiled over that year. Uh, and then we'd split and I'd finish them off. By that time, I had a Tascam four track, so I was in the production mindset. Uh, and once college ended, we ended up eventually back in Atlanta and we had a band there that actually did gig out. Um, and um, then that band broke up and we have our separate bands <laughs> and I, and I'm recording his bands still, and now I'm playing in his band. So uh, that relationship that started in 83 I guess that's now 38 years old and we are still, I'm still playing his songs. I'm recording his songs and that band, his band's called the shut ups and um, they just uh, released, they, we just released an EP called uh, I was made for these times. Um, 
uh, and yeah, it's very good. So I, if you want to check that out, you should, it's on, it's on Bandcamp and Spotify and stuff like that. But so yeah, that, that relationship is still going, which I think is, I'm, I'm impressed that we did that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that, so that's the, that's the, ear, the earliest. I'm not sure how much more you want me to go into that. I, Cause I could talk about it all day. It's been a very important uh, relationship to me because he I still look up to him in a songwriting respect or in many respects, but uh, he clearly was this much better than I was right away. And because he has a more writerly brain, he, um, he just sort of leapfrogged and he was writing stuff that sounded like, you know, Dylan or something. I mean, to, to a 13 year old brain, uh, he sounded like Dylan and, um, later on he sounded he sounded better. <laughs> it's, I, I, yeah. I just kind of every, every song I write to this day, I kind of feel like I need to change my method, but some, a lot of songwriters talk about having somebody they want to impress or like write a song for this person. And that's, he's, he's kind of the guy that I think about. Um, and, uh, whenever I write something and I think he's not going to like, I almost feel deviant. <laughs> so that's the, <laughs> that's my guy christopher snell yeah amazing piece of good fortune to 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 meet somebody that has you know that uh, uh much of an effect uh on your life creatively and and to maintain that friendship and and to collaborate and um can you just tell us a little bit about the formation of of Casper and the Cookies because when that when we were kind of doing some research, um, there's been a lot of people that have been involved with the band over the years and um, just to get a bit of an idea about that band and the the the, the lifetime of that band. Yeah. Um, so when I moved back to Atlanta, um, in I, I graduated Berkeley in in '93, and I uh, I. I, I had already actually recorded the song we're going to listen to by the time I came back to Atlanta. Um, but I was sort of saving it because I, I wanted to, I guess I wanted to, I knew it was, I knew it was good. And I just didn't know what to do with it yet. Um, so I landed back in Atlanta and I started going to open mics. Cause even though I'd grown up as a kid in Atlanta, everybody had moved away and I didn't really have any friends there anymore. So I had to start over. Um, and I met um, a bunch of people pretty quickly. Uh, I met this guy named David Dalt, who started a band called Fireabend, named after uh, the philosopher, but s- s- spelled, yeah, spelled that way, um, F-E-Y-E-R-A-B-E-N-D, which was not an easy name to get people to remember. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was a power trio band, and the first bass player in that band was a guy named Brian Poole, who had been... David's friend from Columbus, Georgia, little town south of Atlanta. And uh, Brian was in Athens, where I am now, and was friends with a lot of the people who were involved in the Elephant Six Collective, uh, which turned out to be exactly the kind of thing I wanted to be involved in. But I was in Atlanta, and I was trying to get something happening there, too. I didn't want to just go over there and pretend like I was as cool as everybody else. So, which, which is exactly what I did four years later. But, um, uh, so, so Brian, Brian was, uh, 
was the first bass player and he decided he didn't want to keep driving the, the 90 minutes back and forth. So, um, so David found a new bass player when he was back in Columbus as this uh, woman who was living in, in Atlanta in Decatur actually named Kay Stanton. And um, she joined the band and eventually we started dating and now we're married and we've been married for 20 years. So Amazing. that was cool. <laughs> um, and we still, we still play music together and we have done that in various projects. Uh, uh, and that, that's been a, a great, it continues to be a great source of inspiration. Um, hmm. So other than, so, so, so that was, so that's how I met Kay, but you know, we, I was still recording alone. Um, and I'd made a couple of cassettes. I, there's, so there was Fire Robin, and then I joined a band called Orange Hat. Um, and some of the guys from that band and this, uh, there's another guy named Kenny Howes, whose band I joined, who's like a, you know, super great power pop songwriter. Uh, and he joined the early version of the, of the cookies as well. So I, I was basically just pinching my friends from the bands that I joined. Um, and I still think all those bands are great. And I thought, I thought they did a great job here. And then uh, Kay and I moved to Athens, which again is only, 70 miles away it's 90 minutes but nobody was going to drive 90 minutes to practice so i again we like Kay and i looked around for who could be in the band and um who would want to be in the band uh and that's been a revolving door since then uh, what was the aspirations for casper and the cookies starting out what did you what did you want to achieve <laughs> uh so i still i i was sort of trying to ride this line between it being, if you want to say a vanity project, but to, to where I was the main creative force, but I wanted to decentralize it a little bit. You know, I guess the benevolent dictator was the sort of political structure that I wanted to impose, um, which, you know, eh, maybe that's good. Maybe it's not. It depends, but uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of the time, um, I was telling people what to play and the rest of the time I was like, I don't know, just come up with something. Um, I guess that's how bands you usually work anyway. But, um, but the aspiration I wanted to, to cross um, the sort of sincerity of somebody like Jonathan Richmond, like the real concrete, joyous, almost childlike, not, not almost childlike, absolutely childlike, joy of Jonathan Richmond with the invent the sonic inventiveness of Brian Eno. And I don't know that you can do those things, but I tried. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, they seem to be almost, I mean, I think you can, but they're also at different ends of the cool spectrum. Like Jonathan Richmond is cool because he doesn't care. Like he's not cool at all. He's going to make the dumbest joke possible because it's funny. And Brian Eno is going to say as little as possible until he can think of something that could, that could, you know, hurt you in a way that makes you see the error of your ways. <laughs> uh, so I don't know um, where I fell in the, in the middle of that, but I was definitely a dork and I still am. Um, so yeah, I was, I could never be as cool as that. And that the ass, and I think that's kind of, 
that's my style, <laughs> um, whether I like it or not. So, so we did uh, some local Atlanta gigs at first, and uh, we started playing Athens pretty soon after that. Uh, but we didn't. Atlanta is a really hard city to be from if you want to tour. Like it's, it unless you've already got uh, some kind of financial uh, um, security blanket you're just making enough money to get to the next month. So you can't get in the van and take a week or two weeks or a whole month to go lose money on the road and come back and still have a job or an apartment or whatever. So, uh, so all the bands that I played in in Atlanta that should have been touring couldn't, um, which is one of the reasons why we moved to Athens. We could afford to buy a house and things were still relatively cheap here. Um, and people, who musicians in Athens knew how to tour. So we figured we'd learn it from them and we did. Um, yeah. So, so, the, so the early aspirations for the cookies were actually to be, I didn't want to have the, I want, I didn't want to have to count on a bunch of musicians to always be there. I kind of assumed that that period of my life, that sort of golden all for one, one for all era had, bypassed not bypassed but had had moved on like that was that was not going to happen anymore um so i liked what bonnie prince billy was doing with changing his name for every album and i thought that'd be kind of a fun thing to do so the first cassette i put out was casper fandango and the knees and the next one was casper fandango and his tiny sick tears and then when i got some people together to be in the live band uh it was casper and the cookies and that was going to change soon after that but everybody who joined the band thought that the band name was great and and shouldn't change and so i i felt like i was just sort of stuck with this name i have always wanted to, to 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 have it be different but it's uh it's never worked out to change it does it does it still exist to this day does casper and the cookies still exist in your head or in a, in a real form that's a hard question to answer we actually we actually broke that band up um, because it, it just felt like it had run its course and we needed to think about other things. Uh, but we are still working on our final album. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it's, it still takes up a little bit of brain space and, uh, and I, I, I wish that it, it had worked out better. And we did a lot of, we, we did a good amount of touring and I'm proud of what we did. Um, and I'm not, I, I wouldn't run away from it. Uh, and if somebody handed us a contract and said, we want to re-release everything and give you tour support, then I would say, hey, uh, I'm in Casper and the Cookies, but none of that's in place. So it doesn't really exist. <laughs> Given the sort of the, 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 the structure that you'd set up for yourself and the way you wanted to go about being uh, running that band, um, how did that marry up with signing to a label and making records and the sort of traditional expectations mm. that that probably brought along with it? Um, I mean, Happy Birthday to Me Records does look like a very cool record label. I don't know masses about it, but just sort of reading about it, it sounds sounds great. So what was that experience like and how did it shift your approach? Yeah, um, I, I reached out to, there's a whole story before Happy Happy Birthday, which is I'd... Um, uh, I I had the song that we're going to hear um, 
I assembled a, a four song demo tape and um, I knew that I had to make some inroads to, to labels and I didn't, there was nobody in Atlanta. So I thought I have, a, I do have a friend in New York city that I can stay with for a few days. So I hopped on a plane and I went up there and uh, Beck was like, loser was a big hit song. Beck was popular. And I thought, well, if I can position myself to look like that, like this sort of oddball who comes in with the freaky song that everybody seems to like for whatever reason, then that's, that's, that would be my best shot. So I, I actually went to what label was it? I think it was like Sony or something. <laughs> like I went, I went to New York city and knocked on Sony records door and said, I'd like to speak to the man in charge and I sat in the <laughs> lobby for about two hours. And <laughs> <laughs> but like I sat on the receptionist's desk and left. Um, and my, my New York city friend, uh, Andreas had, uh, a girlfriend who was working as an art director for this label called zero hour, who actually had some really cool bands. Uh, they had, um, uh, the, uh, the guy from, uh, uh, okay. Anyway, they had some really cool bands. They had, uh, uh, some bands that, that kind of had that feeling. There was a band called the multiple cat, um, oh, it's going to kill me to think of that, think of that, uh, artist's okay. name. Uh, some of Shelley's blues part two, I think is the name of the song I'm, the, that the artist did. That I'm trying to think of. And he was in a band that did a record called the days of wine and roses. Uh, the dream syndicate is the guy from the, dream the, the guy from the dream yeah. syndicate. And, um, in any case, that seemed like a possible place. And I, I handed them a demo tape and got a very nice rejection letter from 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 them and uh you know like send us whatever you do next we're interested to hear whatever it is um and that was great um that little kindness actually meant a lot mm. um uh but it was clear that that wasn't going to be the way forward uh so I, we started touring with the, with the cookies we uh we played a show in um tallahassee florida at this club called club down under which was on the Florida State University campus, uh, and the Cookies were opening for um, the late BP Helium, which was Brian Poole's band, and I was playing in that band as well. And the other band on the bill was this band from Japan called Aleki Bass. Um, and Mike Turner had signed them to Happy Happy Birthday to Me, and he was being their you know their their road manager as well, kind of double duty. Um, and happy happy birthday had sort of th th this will sound insulting in a way i don't mean it to be but they were sort of the, the farm team for elephant six bands like you know they he, he wasn't going to get to sign a neutral milk hotel but but he could but he could put out records by uh marshmallow coast or uh, i mean he put out he put out really good records he put out some great records um and I think I'd already sent something to him to review. He had a zine called the bees knees and he'd already given me like a lukewarm review on, on the, on the first CD that I self-released. So he was maybe nervous when he met me and he realized that he'd already in his mind insulted me, but I read the review and thought it was pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so we played and they played and we had a good time. And then uh, one of, one of the songs that we played that night, was uh, this song called Barnacle Bill the Sailor that they thought was really catchy. And 
So Lucky Bass was driving around with Mike Turner and they kept singing my song. Um, and they couldn't stop singing my song. So they, they showed up at the next show the next night in Atlanta. And Mike said, hey, why don't you just send me whatever you're working on? I, I want to hear it. Um, so, I, you know, we were working on a record and I sent him what we had. And he had a lot of ideas about about how a band could could be, you know, uh, somewhat solvent. Ideas about how to promote records and stuff. And I was like, well, this guy is really thinking of this stuff. He's interested in talking to me. So so that's, you know, we, we worked with him for two or three records uh and i still i still work with them on on various things and what what was the how did the relationship develop what was it like and what was the impact of of being signed to that label for you well being a small label uh without they didn't have a like a benefactor who was you know somebody behind the scenes just maybe more money than they knew what to do with (laughs) like some some labels are lucky that way and they still have somebody you know like you can't spend more than a million dollars this year, you know, or whatever, but you have to spend at least 750,000. Um, it was a real grassroots thing. And, um, and we were plugged in pretty quickly to a lot of his contacts and that was great. Um, so we met, you know, we, we instantly had friends in Charlotte, North Carolina and St. Louis, Missouri and New York city and Washington, DC. Um, who helped us get gigs and and had a place to stay and we had bands to to share the stage with and we learned from all of these people kind of the you know the the way to behave on tour and like when you're at the show this is what you do and you know you you set up your stuff before you before it's time to get on stage and so it's ready to just pop down and play and when you're done you you take it off stage immediately to get out of the way for the next band. And, you know, the whole just oper- operationalization of being a touring musician was that, that was the school for it. Uh, it was very, very useful. Uh, and gave me a idea about um, you know, the, the economies of, of that lifestyle where, you know, you're going to be eating cheese and crackers or whatever. But if you can sell enough CDs at $10 a pop, then you can put gas in the tank and maybe something for the for the other members of the band. Because that was the thing, like we we paid, we mostly paid, still paid to release our records. It was a small enough label, like he wasn't always paying for promotion or always paying for manufacturing. But the the network and the name and all, all of that was enough. Uh, that was more useful, really. I love the picture that you painted there of the uh, of the touring lifestyle and you and that uh, the schooling that that gave you. Um, are there any particular shows that stand out for you? The sort of fa- favorite shows that you played during that time? Well, it's all a blur. I can I, this. <laughs> I, I'm much more quick to come up with like snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. But oh, you know what? Okay, so there's. Uh, we did we did some touring with uh, the band Apples and Stereo uh, in two thousand seven. Was it seven? I think it was seven. Um, yeah, so uh, one of, one of our friends in Athens, um, this this uh, guy named Bill Doss, who 
had become very nice to me and I was thrilled because he was in the band Olivia Tremor Control. I'm like, I love your band and I think that you're a really nice guy and I don't, I'm glad that you want to talk to me. This is incredible. Um, and he liked us enough that when it was time for the Apples and Stereo to put a record out and go on tour that year, he pitched us as the opening band or the support band for the first leg of that tour. And, you know, Robert Schneider said, yeah, let's do it. So we played, I can't remember how long it was. It might, it might've been a month, six weeks or something like that of, of shows, maybe less, but it was just an incredible time, you know, because we felt like we had so much support from them that, that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Like we were okay with slogging it out and just play into nobody for nothing. And that was, we were used to that, but all of a sudden there was this like string of, of shows that were people were there and they were happy to hear us because, you know, we didn't suck. And the band that was on after us was the one they came to see. Like we weren't embarrassing. All right. Um, and there was a couple of times we play, oh, so we played a show in, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, and we we did well enough that the next time we played Madison, Wisconsin, there was a bidding war over us. <laughs> there were two booking <laughs> agents that really wanted us to they they wanted they wanted to, to have us back. We finally played the show, and nobody showed up. <laughs> um, it's fine. Um, it's hilarious, but. Um, so there was moments like, like, you know, the, the first half of that story where everything was just so great. And it actually felt like if you do this long enough, uh, somebody will pay attention and give you the support that you need to get to the next step. Um, I'm kind of, I don't know. I don't know if we were ever going to get to that. Well, we didn't. So I guess we weren't, but it was a fun, a fun thing to a fun, a fun dalliance. <laughs> so there, very much a kind of uh, sort of rites of passage culture in in American music that you will go out and, and tour. Yeah, I band. wish that there were uh, some acceptance for more for uh, home recording artists because I think that I would have had a lot more output had that been an option. Um, early on, there was a, a I, I talked to a guy from Astral Works and I said, you know. He kept talking about bands have to tour. And I said, is there just no way that bands can make it without touring like a home recording project? Because I, you know, I could think of several right away that bands that I wasn't sure were touring, but they were known as home recording projects. And he said, no, you have to tour. Like, oh, okay. So, yeah, I think I, I don't know that it's maybe it's a little different in uh, in the UK, but but here, uh, unless you get a really lucky break, you've got to tour or you did have to tour back when people did that. You've talked about, um, about elephant six and your connection into, into that you know, very unique label. You, um, you spent some time as a member of, of Montreal yeah. doing some, some touring with them. Uh, tell us a bit more about that experience and a bit, a bit more insight into the elephant six collective. Okay. Um, so, uh, though it is a collective by the time that, that Kay and I moved to Athens in 2000, it had already started to sort of wither away a little bit. Like there was this massive amount of creativity and, and collectivity and unity that I wasn't present for. Um, 
So back when um, of Montreal was putting out a new record every six months and you know, Elf Power had a record every year and an EP whenever they would tour. And um, the Apples were in Denver doing their thing and they had a whole the, uh, a whole group of bands uh, like like Beulah. So they were sort of Elephant Six West already back then. Um, but there was still, I think, a, a pretty decent feeling of of unity. But by 2000, there had been enough like friendships gone sour um, and some other personal issues that had come into that. The, you know, the, the color was off, the bloom was off the rose, to, so to speak. Um, so we showed up ready to to get weird and you know, only to find out that uh, ain't nobody getting weird right now. Um, but, but Athens being Athens, there was still plenty of, uh, of scene to be, to be experiencing. Uh, and that, uh, it, it sort of regenerates itself every year. Um, even when people think nothing's going on in Athens, there is something cool going on in Athens, probably two or three really cool things. Um, but, but in Elephant Six specifically, I'd been a big fan of, of Montreal when I lived in Atlanta. Um, when I was in Fire Island with Brian Poole, he would bring me cassettes and he was in of Montreal early on and he was in Elf Power as well. So he brought me this cassette that had the first of Montreal record, which was unfinished and the first Elf Power record, the full length before they came out. And I just kept driving around in my uh, in my Cutlass Cruiser station wagon, just listening to this cassette over and over again. Um, so, uh, I, you, I, I've already talked about how I, you know, I saw the kinship there already, but there was, um, I want to say there was a, a, not a heavy drug culture, but a drug culture around that stuff. I think if you, if you listen to it, you're, you know, especially a band like Olivia Tremor Control, that stuff's incredible. And it's, and it's very heady, heavy psychedelic music. But I, as much as I love that sound, I was not the kind of person who was going to do psychedelics a lot, a little bit. Okay. But not, it's not a lifestyle for me. I've got a function. Um, so that was already something that was going to keep me from being in the inner sanctum. I think uh, uh, I just didn't, I just didn't smoke enough pot and I didn't, you know, I couldn't hang at those parties or whatever. I, I went to plenty of parties and I met a lot of great people and we had a lot of fun uh, and I'm not uh, ungrateful for any of the, any of the, the things that, that I got to do. Uh, but I do feel a separation there. And that's one reason. Probably my goofiness is another reason. Um, well, whatever. Um, but Brian uh, left of Montreal and then later rejoined. And when he rejoined, the band was going through a transitional period. Uh, and he brought me with him because they needed another multi-instrumentalist. So when I joined the first tour that we did, I was playing everybody was not just me, but you know, I was playing drums on one song and guitar on another song and keyboards on another song and bass on another song and doing background vocals the whole time. So that's, a, I think of that as a very 
Athens thing to do is to have a band of six people who are constantly changing instruments. At least it was then. Um, and there was a shift in the lineup after that. And things started to settle in to where everybody kind of had a role. Uh, and I was, the culture inside that band at that time was not healthy. Uh, it had just, I, I don't know what it was like before, but it started to become, uh, you know, psychically exhausting on the road. Um, and uh, I wasn't doing well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't drunk. I wasn't high. I was just, you know, not doing well un under the, under the, the politics of, of the group, under the, the, the power dynamics. Um, there, there was some weird infighting and stuff and there's a whole movie about it. I'm not in the movie, but I could, I could have been and told you all kinds of shit, but that's all right. Um, the, uh, yeah. So I, I was, I was either going to be fired or quit. And I didn't know that I was close to being fired, but I was, um, but I, I just broke down in the middle of a practice and it's like, I, you know, after a year of being in that band, it's like, guys, I cannot do this. Like, I love this band and I, I want to be part of it. And they were just about to, they had just released um, Sunlandic Twins and he was already working on Hissing Fauna. So that band was about to, they, there were conversations in the band, in the van about, you know, what, so we have to, we have to, you know, nail down this booking agent and we have to buy a new van and or a bus and like the things that you start to do when you know that you've got, you're, you're planning the next five years and they were doing that. Mm. Um, and I just had this hunch that I was not going to be part of that. And I was right. Um, so that was a weird experience. Um, but, uh, it was cool anyway. Like there was still, there was still great shows. Like the, the time that I was in that we had so many great shows and I met a lot of people that way too. Um, and there's this whole, I mean, even, even Kevin Barnes probably would, you know, need to go to counseling for the things that went on in that band. <laughs> these things do make you stronger. These experiences, though, don't they? Joe? They do. And I, I still, you know, I'm still not great at touring. I don't know what it is. I can't, I can be happy and I don't think that I'm naturally miserable on tour, but there's something about, I, I kind of, I love seeing new places but people change when you, when you get, when you go away from home for a long period of time and you can kind of feel it. Like we did, we did enough tours to where we knew what it felt like to be on tour for a day versus four days versus a week versus two weeks. Like there's this rhythm and uh, maybe it's, I, I don't know what it's like for bands who get separate buses and that kind of thing. Um. But if you're in a van all together all the time, you you've got to figure it out. Yeah. You've got to sort it out. Um, it would be uh, it would be remiss not to ask you to share a bit about your experience of um, playing with uh, the late great Daniel Johnston. Ah, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that, Ben and I are both huge fans of his work. Yeah. I got into some Rolling Stone is a really mainstream as hell magazine, but once in a while they'll throw in a, a freak just to keep it interesting. So I got into all of these bands that got three and a half star reviews 
because they felt like they had to include the likes of uh, Stump or Negative Land or Daniel Johnston. And I would read these reviews and go, well, that sounds like my kind of thing. And so I, I that's how I bought my first Daniel Johnston record. Um, and uh, wow, that it was so muddy sounding and so like mysterious and I don't know, depressing, maybe it's scary more than anything. It wasn't as depressing as it was just like terrifying. Um, anyway, like a lot of people, I got really into him. Um, but by 2007, I wasn't listening to him as much. Mike Turner from happy, happy birthday had been doing pop fest, Athens pop fest and had been, you know, getting, Kind of bigger name headliners every year. Like every year has had, had been fun, but he, he called me and he said, "Hey, Casper, uh, I'm gonna I want to run something past you. I'm I'm thinking about getting Daniel Johnston to headline. Uh, actually, he already had him. He already had him. Like I've got Daniel Johnston to headline Pop Fest, but he needs a backup band. Do you uh, do you guys want to do it? Do you think he could do it? And <laughs> I was a little bit blasé about it at first, like, okay, sure. Like that's something I used to listen to. Um, and, and the more I thought about it, I was like, Oh my God, this is going to be crazy. Um, and the, the catch was that we weren't going to be able to rehearse with him except at soundcheck. Um, and I think that he'd been doing, he, he did this, on that tour, maybe he did it for multiple tours, but no, no previous rehearsal with him. Like you, he'll either send you the songs. His brother, Dick was um, in charge of catalog. So uh, we requested some songs uh, and there were some songs that he didn't want to do and some songs that he wanted to do. So we knew exactly what we we're going to play. We practiced the hell out of it. And um, in my mind, like that, instead of trying to, sound like his records or rewrite everything from scratch. I, I was a big fan of the Kathy McCarty record, dead dogs eyeball. I don't know if you're familiar with that record, but it's, uh, it is, if, if Daniel's records are, um, black and white cartoons, like really interesting black and white cartoons, then hers is the Disney Technicolor version. Uh, the good Disney Technicolor version, the early stuff. So it, it's, uh, it, it's just it's a great record. Um, so she'd already done the heavy lifting. She, she and Brian Beatty, the drummer producer, they they'd figured out how to take these sketchy songs and turn them into full fledged productions. And I said, well, we can take that as the blueprint. So we learned we learned those arrangements and and some other ones. Uh, I was so thrilled we got to do Sorry Entertainer. Because uh, I don't know that he'd been doing that one much, and I just love that song so much. Um, and he killed it. Um, hmm. But there was so yeah. So meeting him was sort of, you know, I knew we weren't going to become fast friends, and and we didn't, and that's cool. <laughs> but um, uh, but it was fun. I mean, it was so nerve wracking knowing that we had thirty minutes to to practice a 45 minute set. <laughs> so we just ran through the first, you know, 90 seconds of a couple of, of, of a few songs and to, to figure out that it was going to work. And then we went away for a few hours, came back and did the show. And 
Athens was kind of on edge. Like, how is this? The, 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 the town is just full of fans uh, of of all the early, you know, the, all the songs on the What of Whom and early Daniel Johnston like fans and really hardcore. And they all want to hear I Save Cigarette Butts, like all the really deep cuts. Um, uh, so I swear to God, the 40 watt was oversold by, you know, 300 people. And it was the middle of August, I think. The hottest time of the year. Uh, it was just insanely packed and insanely hot. Uh, and it was, that was probably the best show I've been a part of on stage. It was so good. <laughs> it was so triumphant. Um, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Wow. Well, Jason, it's been great to hear about all your experiences right from, you know, two and three years old. Um, what are your kind of your, your future plans? Where do they um, sit at the moment? The, the next big project is to finish this Casper and the Cookies record and finally get that in the rearview mirror. Uh, and the project that has to come right on the heels of that would be Pylon Reenactment Society. Um, so since since the Pylon box set that came out, that includes the the demo that you played on on the show that Vanessa uh, was interviewed for. Since that came out, um, actually before before that came out, we had been writing new material playing shows that incorporated both pylon songs and pylon reenactment society songs and getting good reactions. Uh, and that's a whole new way of writing. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah, we, we have more songs to write and a whole album to record. Uh, and I can't wait to do that. It's going to be really fun. The reaction to, um, the box set has been absolutely fantastic, hasn't it? The, 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 the reaction to box and, and the press and, uh, all over the all over the world it seems to have just landed so well with people yeah it's uh it's incredible to 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 see it happen i mean i i worked on it for two years not in isolation but a lot of the time i was i would just send i would i had all the tapes and i'd listen to all of the tapes and i would send things out to the to the rest of the band to listen to and um and you know the the visual the guys on the visual side worked very separately and the fact that it all came together and it worked as a unit and they did such a beautiful job with, with the book and the packaging uh, and that when it was presented to everybody else in the world, they latched onto it. They saw exactly, I mean, there were a lot of Pylon fans already, but even the people who weren't, they had all the information they needed. Like you, you're either in or out and everybody was in uh, and it's just so, so, so great to see that they, they, they did, they deserve it so much. What a, a unique uh, and interesting band. Well, the stories that you shared on our podcast with Vanessa in terms of being the custodian of the archive and the stories that you've shared about your own archive today can see how you are the perfect person to have kind of helmed the project for them in such a spectacular way. I like to think so. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, Randy, the guitar player who's, who's passed away. Uh, he, um, he and I, we have similarities too. Like I, I like, I see similarities between myself and a lot of people that I, I know I'm not that similar to. Like, I mean, Daniel Johnston, I have, I have that kind of 
you take two tape recorders and you plop them next to each other so you can overdub. Uh, my circumstances were different, but my technique was the same. Um, Randy was, uh, he had his own tuning and he was a, probably a drummer first. He was a very percussive guitarist. And when he played drums, he sounded as good on drums as he did on guitar. Um, and I feel that way too. Like I'm probably a better drummer than I am a, than I, than I am a guitar player. Um, and playing his in his tuning allows me to stay in that kind of mysterious spot that I was talking about earlier where I'm really unaware of, of theory at all. Uh, and in that way, I get to sort of use his brain just a little a little bit of it. I'm going to come up with my own thing, but using his brain. Um, so it's a, it's a, a real honor to to get to do everything that I've done in that universe. And I, and I still hope that I'm being respectful to, to Pylon and to Randy. Uh, that's always my, uh, my intention. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us again, coming on the podcast again. It's been just brilliant to hear you speak about your music making and your approach. And I could listen to you talk all, all, all evening. It's, it's, um, it's been really fascinating. So thank you so much. Could we just finish off please with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now yes i'm jason neesmith you're going to hear a song by casper fandango and his tiny sick tears called mosey home thanks jason oh thanks thank you so much <laughs> i had a choice of one or two then i heard a call inside me and i took that cue got out of the car Smeared as I did go, a vision appeared in my shadow. 
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 